Next up we have Erin. She's a grad student and she's actually going to be talking to us from the back so that she can operate her own slides so you can watch the fancy show and listen to her delightful voice from behind you. Thanks, Ashley. So, yes, slight control freak here, and I'm expecting to have to clicker and don't, so I'm just going to stand back here so I can advance this at my own pace. So, uh, I'm going to be talking today about what a species is and a little bit about how speciation works. So, since I only have 15 minutes, I'm going to talk mostly about uh, my own work that I've done or that people in my lab or related labs have done. So, spoiler alert, there are going to be a lot of lampreys. Don't worry to ask me more general questions afterwards. Alright, so lampreys, for those of you who aren't familiar with them, they are very primitive fish and actually some of the earliest vertebrates. So all lampreys start their lives as filter feeding larvae in the sediment in fresh water. And they feed this way for several years before they go through their metamorphosis to their adult phase. Now, as adults, lampreys can have one of two life history types. They can be parasitic or they can be non-parasitic. So parasitic lampreys are the ones with big scary teeth that you can see up there that you might have heard of before. And they are fairly large and they will feed parasitically on fish for a year or more as adults before they spawn and die. Non-parasitic lampreys are what you see in the upper right there. And they're much smaller, they don't have all those scary teeth. And the reason for that is that they don't feed on fish. Actually after metamorphosis they don't feed at all. And instead, what they do is they use the fat stores that they've accumulated as larvae to fuel them to go through sexual maturation quite quickly. And then they spawn and die within several months after metamorphosis without ever eating during that time. So what's particularly cool about lampreys is that over and over again, in different groups of lampreys, there's been a parasitic species that's given rise to one or more non-parasitic descendant species. And since repeated evolution happens in many different groups of lampreys, and these closely related parasitic and non-parasitic lampreys are referred to as species pairs or paired species. And so those are the terms you'll hear me using to refer to them throughout the presentation. So one of the big questions in lamprey biology is we have these paired species that are so closely related. Are they actually different species or are they just different ecotypes of the same species? There are a few things that uh, make us wonder whether or not they are really different species. And the first thing is that parasitic and non-parasitic lampreys, those species pairs, are often genetically indistinguishable at all of the genes that we've examined so far, which is very unusual for what we would call good species. They usually look identical during their larval stage, and it's only as adults that you start to see those differences in appearance, which are then quite pronounced. Uh, and recently, there's even been evidence that parasitic and non-parasitic lampreys may spawn together. So you can see that we have some reasons to doubt that they are actually different species. But in order to fully answer the question of whether they are the same species or different species, what we have to do first is decide how we're going to define species. And this turns out to be a surprisingly difficult task. In biology, there are dozens of different ways to define species, depending on your own thoughts on what species you're working with. And so today I'm just going to go through a few of the most common ones and talk about what they mean in general and how they apply to the lampreys that I work on. So the first and most common is called the biological species concept. And this is nice because it's really intuitive. What it basically says is if two animals can breed together and produce fertile offspring, then they are the same species. 
If they can't breed together, or if the offspring that they produce are not fertile, then they are not the same species. So, pretty simple in most cases. One downside of this is it depends on being able to know whether they interbreed and what the results of that are. And that can sometimes be very difficult to figure out. Excuse me, as it is sometimes in lampreys. So, if you look at this old illustration of some lampreys there, you can see the two larger ones near the top. Those are parasitic lampreys, and the three smaller ones near the bottom are non-parasitic lampreys. Now, you can see there's a big size difference, and this becomes really important when they spawn. The way that lamprey spawning works is, the male will take that huge scary sucker, or a smaller, less scary sucker in the case of the non-parasitic species, and he'll attach using that to the back of the female's head, and then he's just going to wrap his body around hers and squeeze the eggs out and then fertilize them. Very romantic. What's important to know about this maneuver is that if there's too much of a size difference between the male and the female, it won't work. They won't have the right angle so that their eggs and sperm can meet up. So, for a long time, lamprey biologists thought that this huge size difference between parasitic and non-parasitic species would mean that, nope, they definitely can't interbreed, That's, there's no way it's going to work. But when we started to do more and more genetic studies, we found that there was actually genetic evidence of interbreeding between parasitic and non-parasitic populations in the areas where they occur together. And so this was confusing. We didn't really know how it worked. But in recent years, there have been some studies that have suggested a way that this might happen. In fish, there's a spawning behavior called sneaker male fertilization. And what happens here is a male and a female fish are getting it on, and they're spawning. And just as the female uh, excretes the eggs, whatever you would use for, as she uh, produces the eggs, a different male will sneak in there and fertilize them all himself without doing any of the work. So it turns out that this also occurs in lampreys. It can occur within a species or between species. So what you can get is that two parasitic lampreys can be spawning together, and a non-parasitic male can dart in at the last minute and fertilize those eggs. And so now we have an explanation for how some of this gene flow between species might be occurring. Okay, moving on to the next species concept. I'm just gonna wander up here to the front for a little. Now this one is more complicated, and I apologize for that, but it's also one of the other big ones. So I'll try and keep it fairly simple. What they say with the phylogenetic species concept is that in order for something to be considered a true species, it has to be what we call monophyletic. And monophyletic means that if you put it on an evolutionary tree, this group will encompass a common ancestor, in this case B, and all of its descendants here. So this would be a monophyletic grouping. You could also make smaller monophyletic groupings if you took C as the common ancestor and included D and E or the same thing with this group here. Now, where it doesn't work is if you get something like this here, where you try to combine E and G and say, oh, those are species. This doesn't work under the phylogenetic species concept because these, E's most recent common ancestor is C and G's is F. So, in order to find a group that encompasses both of those and their common ancestor, you have to go all the way back to B. So those would not be a species under this concept. And finally, we also have what's called a paraphyletic grouping here. And this is where it includes a common ancestor, which is A, and some of its descendants, but not all of them. So that also wouldn't work. 
So I know that's a little complicated, but the advantage of the phylogenetic species concept is that it allows us to take evolutionary history into account. And for people like me who love evolution, this is a really great thing. The downside, besides how complicated it can be, is that it can be very expensive to get all the data required to build these complicated evolutionary trees and to say whether a group is monophyletic or not. All right, we have one final, uh, no, we are going to talk about how this applies to lampreys. And I'm going to wander up to the front. Well, <laughs> All right, so when we try to apply this in lampreys, this is just an a evolutionary tree from a study that my boss did a few years ago. You don't need to pay attention to the big details of this. What I just want you to look at is this middle section here. So this has got two lamprey species. There's the northern brook lamprey, which is a non-parasitic species, and the silver lamprey, which is a parasitic species. And these two are a species pair. And if you look at this tree, you see that you don't get all of the silvers or all of the northern brooks grouping together. They're all mixed in together. So you can't take either group and make it monophyletic. In order to get a monophyletic group, you have to take silver and northern brook lamprey together and go back to here on the tree. So what this suggests is that at least that species pair may uh, be better considered as a single species. Okay, so one final species concept, just briefly. This is the morphological species concept. And I'm not going to apply it to lampreys because it's very simplistic. What it basically says is that if two individuals look the same, they must be the same species. So you can see that that's a much less powerful way of looking at it for a lot of modern data sets. Where this is most useful, though, is in looking at things like asexually reproducing species, where you can't talk about them interbreeding, or about fossils, where they are unfortunately. <laughs> 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 All right, so I'm not going to talk about that in lampreys because it doesn't really work so well for them. So now that we've talked about what a species is in some basic terms, I want to just quickly talk about how new species evolve. So our classic example of speciation is looking at the Galapagos finches. This is your token non-fish for the whole presentation, so if you don't like fish, enjoy this. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to talk about the simplest uh, proposed way that speciation can work. There are a lot of more complicated and controversial ways, but I'm not going to get into those today because I don't have three weeks. So in this model, the first step would be geographic isolation. So for the finches, the way this worked was that you had one group of finches that colonized a, one island and a different group that colonized a different island. So those two groups are then geographically isolated and even if they could interbreed, they're prevented from doing so by that distance. The next step is divergence of those groups. So this can happen in several different ways. The one that I'm most interested in and we'll talk about today is through natural selection. So the way it worked in the finches was Say that island A had a bunch of really big seeds on it that were really hard for the finches to break into to eat. So the finches that colonized island A would have developed very big, strong beaks over evolutionary time in order to eat those seeds. But let's say over on island B, there were very small seeds that actually needed delicate beaks to handle. So uh, through evolu evolution, the finches on island B would have developed much smaller beaks in order to deal with those. So that's the divergence, having one group of finches with big beaks and one with small beaks. Now, the final step of this type of speciation is what's called reinforcement. So, in this case, what happens is, at some point in the future, these two groups come back into contact with each other. And uh, weird things start to happen. 
So let's say that the finches, the big-beaked finches and the small-beaked finches actually hybridize and they produce offspring. Now in this case, what you're going to get is an offspring with an intermediate-sized beak. And since we only have big seeds and little seeds to eat, that finch is not going to be particularly good at eating anything. And so natural selection is going to act against those hybrid offspring. So over time, that's going to produce selection pressure against hybridization, and that's going to drive those two species further apart. So, simple model of how speciation works. It can get a lot more complicated than that. But because I like lampreys, I'm going to talk about how this could work in lampreys. This is a lot more speculative. Lampreys are not as well studied because most people don't love them as much as I do. So <laughs> most of this is going to be just an explanation of how it could have happened. It didn't necessarily happen this way. But the same steps would have happened. So in lampreys, it's fairly well accepted that the parasitic species are the ancestral forms. Genetic data tell us that. And the non-parasitic species have evolved from them. So one way that we think this could have happened, the first step would have been geographic isolation. And in a lot of fish species, especially in the northern hemisphere, a prime time for geographic isolation was during glaciation. So in the last glaciation, you might have had one group of lampreys that ends up in this lake, and then a glacier in between it, and the next, and the lampreys in the next lake over. And now they're geographically isolated, and they can't interbreed. Then we have divergence. And so the way that divergence into parasitic and non-parasitic species in lampreys may have worked is through some life history trade-offs. If you're a lamprey, it's a bit of a balance depending on whether it's best for you to be parasitic or non-parasitic. And it depends on the environmental conditions. So the trade-off is between survival and reproductive potential. Non-parasitic lampreys, because they have such an unobtrusive lifestyle, they're larvae in the mud for several years, and then they don't eat after metamorphosis. They have pretty high survival. They aren't really out there getting eaten by birds and other fish all that much. Parasitic lampreys, because they do feed on fish, that's a pretty risky life stage. And so their survival during that stage isn't as high. But the opposite side of that is reproductive potential. So those parasitic lampreys that eat fish they get to grow much larger, and so they can produce many more offspring than non-parasitic lampreys, which are small and have few offspring. So one scenario in which we think uh, non-parasitic lampreys may have evolved, and grossly oversimplifying this, but is basically, if you had a, a situation where whatever lake they ended up in, there weren't that many fish to eat. And so, it became less and less of an advantage for lampreys to be parasitic, because they couldn't have much of an increase in reproductive potential from that. There wasn't much to eat, they couldn't get as big. And so over time, there might have been selection to favor the survival side of this, edge, of this equation. And so non-parasitic lampreys might have evolved in that way. Now, our final step, reinforcement, is a little less certain. Now remember, reinforcement occurs when there are barriers to interbreeding or hybridization turns out to be a bad idea and not work that well. Unfortunately, we don't know yet uh, how, how that is working in lampreys. There have been experiments to produce hybrid larvae in the lab, and these have worked. But unfortunately, it takes at least seven, seven years to rear lampreys to adulthood. And so nobody has done this. We don't know how these hybrids would have turned out. And it's turning out to be very difficult to get our hands on some more lampreys to make more hybrids. But the fact that we are seeing a gene flow between parasitic and non-parasitic species 
suggests that some of these hybrids may be surviving and contributing to the gene pool. So I'm looking forward to future experiments that will tell us more about this. So all of this stuff to answer the simple question of are parasitic and non-parasitic lampreys different species? Well, according to the biological species concept, uh, they need to be able to interbreed to be the same species. Now remember that we have many different species pairs of lampreys. There's not just the one pair that I illustrated earlier, northern broken silver. There are many different species pairs. And if we look at all of those, we see that some show genetic evidence for interbreeding, and some don't. According to phylogenetic species concept, remember they need to be monophyletic in order to be the same species. Again, we do the genetic studies. It looks like most are not monophyletic, but some are. So, like anything in biology, the answer is that it's messy. The answer varies. <laughs> but what I think is really cool about this is the variation that we see within lampreys. We go all the way from, yes, they are definitely diff different species, they don't interbreed at all, to, yeah, they appear to interbreed all the time. And so what we're seeing there is really a whole spectrum of speciation from the beginning to a more finished final state. And I think that's very cool. Any questions? <laughs> to be clear, your questions don't have to be about lampreys. That's just what I know the most about. But was the on the biology stuff? Was, was that episode of the X Files with the lamprey man your favorite? Oh, I haven't gotten to that one yet. Oh. I just started the X Files actually. Still in yes. season one, so it's no spoilers. <laughs> well, you have some at home? Pardon? You have some at home? Uh, not at home. In my lab, I do. But I don't keep any of these as pets. I don't like them quite that much. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I know that they have done bloodletting. Would this be something that a person, we spoke about bloodletting, but they do use it for when you reattach fingers or limbs to keep a blood flow going. <laughs> would you want to use the lamp? Would for this that? guy be good for it? Uh, okay, so what you're talking about with fingers and limbs, they generally use leeches for that, leeches, which I'm sure yes. that you know. And so leeches are not particularly closely related to lampreys. They just happen to both feed on blood. Right. The reason I would be hesitant to use a lamprey if I happen to need that bloodletting would be because you see all those teeth? Yeah. They use those teeth to like rasp away at you and dig a hole into you so they can get the blood out. And some of them actually eat flesh too, not just blood. Oh. But, cool fact, you as a human are actually pretty safe putting a lamprey on you for a short period of time. I have done it. Uh, I've stuck one to my face before. The oh, picture boy. is not in the presentation because I have been told not to share that picture with the world. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they actually, they are sensitive to the chemicals released by fish, and that's their uh, primary prey species. Oh. So although they may attach to humans, they need to stay there for a really long time before they figure out how to eat us. Yeah. Huh. So you don't need to worry about swimming in the lake. Lampreys will not eat you. So you mean like it would, it would attach itself to you, but it just wouldn't even occur to the lamprey to start eating you because you don't taste like We don't smell fish. right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they probably wouldn't be in a big hurry to attach themselves to us either. Okay. Don't freak me out to see you coming at me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah with good reason. <laughs> How big is one if you like just... It varies. Uh, the ones that we have here in Manitoba, the non-parasitic ones will get to be about like this as adults, and the parasitic ones are like this. But uh, some of the species that actually go out to the ocean and come back, they can get to be like this. So how big would the mouth be? 
Uh, ours here, like that, probably not a whole bunch bigger on the ocean-going species, but a little. I think the underlying question is how terrifying are they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're not terrifying. They're wonderful. And actually, I work on a lot of projects about lamprey conservation because uh, what you may have heard about these guys is the sea lamprey in the Great Lakes, which is an invasive species, and it's been bad for the fishery there. So people hear about lampreys, they think terrifying, invasive, horrible things. But actually, there are lots of lamprey species in other areas that are native to those areas. And those lamprey species aren't doing particularly well. Uh, a lot of times it's because of dam construction, habitat fragmentation. And so it's important to conserve these, even though they aren't pretty. Are, are zebra mussels a problem for lampreys because they're like killing off the food supply for the fish that they eat? I don't actually know. I think zebra mussels aren't here yet, they're in the Great Lakes. Yeah. And in the Great Lakes, they're so fussed about the sea lamprey that if the zebra mussel was a problem, they'd probably say, great, you know, these two are at least balancing each other out. But I guess the zebra mussels do tend to clear the water of other things. I yeah. think they're also filter feeders. So that could be bad for the larval stage. I don't know specifically, but it sounds well, like it could be. Uh, they vary in size. I mean, when they're first hatched, they're tiny, of course. But they can get to be about this big before metamorphosis. Maybe a little bigger, depending on the species. What got you interested in lampreys? Uh, I was an undergrad student a few years ago, and I was looking for a lab to do my honors thesis in. And I knew that I wanted to do uh, molecular biology. I thought that, was, that would be good to get some experience in. And uh, my advisor then, who's my boss now, uh, she was looking at some really interesting evolutionary questions using lampreys. And although I wouldn't want to devote the rest of my career to them, they have a lot of cool stuff going on. And it's also just a great opportunity for me to learn new concepts and techniques. I have heard that. I have not eaten any of ours here. But in Europe, they used to be a delicacy. And they're actually having to worry about conserving them there because they were overfished as a delicacy. We tried to send them some of our surplus lampreys from the Great Lakes, but they turned out to be too contaminated to eat, so Europe didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well thanks very much. Thank you.